Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022... Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you highly organised and love working in a fast-paced environment? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for an executive legal assistant to support a national leader on a 12-month fixed-term contract based here in Melbourne. This will include coordinating and supporting the leader with high-level administration, uh, coordinating documents with strong attention to detail, building and managing relationships with key internal and external stakeholders, and providing excellent client service. To apply, simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the campaigns and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're finishing off our post-election wrap-up and we're finishing with the state in the West, Western Australia, that came home for us on election night and brought uh, the seats needed to get us over the line to get the 76 and uh, elect an Albanese Labor government. So we're going to be talking to Linda Shalom, a good mate of mine who um, is a former party official uh, and now is um, one of the senior partners at Newgate. And she's going to be unpacking the WA results. And actually, a little bit different to some of the other episodes, probably Linda, given that she's been uh, working in Labor Party politics and campaigns in the West for over a decade now, she can sort of track back to where the change in Western Australia began. And I think that's a really interesting insight, some key takeaways for the rest of us. Um, in the way that we want to set up our party and, and um, win election campaigns and build for the future. So um, enjoyed the chat with Linda today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcast. And when you're done listening to today's episode, leave us a review. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on face- Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Let's get to today's episode. <laughs> We're taping this one on a Friday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and this is our last of six episodes where we've been doing a post-election debrief uh, state by state and to and I, I always save the best for last. Yeah. Uh, and so I um, so we're going to look at Western Australia and help me uh, unpack that is uh, former ALPWA Assistant Secretary and now a Director for Newgate and uh, she's joining me from the line from She's joining me on the line from Perth, Linda Ashalam. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Woo! Hi. It's good to be back. It is good to be back. Now, the last time I saw you, obviously, was on our live telecast. <laughs> and I can just, t- can I tell you that it was just so much fun watching you give us the reports on all the seats <laughs> live. It was brilliant. I remember I was, we were sort of communicating to our, the, the control room via Slack, and they were, they were the ones who were telling us where we need to go next. And I was writing back, going, no, 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 stick with this. This is good. 
this is really good. You were so up and about. And obviously, you know, you were sitting, I'm assuming you were sitting in front of your computer and you were actually looking at the back end of the results coming through from the party, right? Yeah. Yeah. And your eyes were just darting all over the screen going, oh my God, this is coming in and now this is coming in and wait, just give me a minute. You know, and there's a party going on behind you. It was just fantastic television. I loved every moment of it. It's wild swings. It was um, good fun. And I, and I looked over at one point because um, a few of the seats were starting to get called and everybody was cheering. And I, and I looked over at the team who were sitting quite quietly and just sort of, you know, celebrating to themselves. And we we're in a sort of corner room of a, of a back party. And I said, why isn't, why aren't you guys cheering? And they kind of all pointed over and there was a, a pack of journalists all sitting on the other side and everyone's trying to be a little bit on their best behaviour to start the night. And I thought, oh, okay. I wondered why we weren't sort of up and about getting very active, but I was looking around and all the noise was in the sort of background. But um, it was just such an amazing night. And I remember thinking to myself, I messaged you afterwards because I thought, geez, I didn't do your telecast must uh, live, live stream much justice because um, instead of giving you insights, I just kept looking at everything going, this is crazy. This is nothing I've seen before at a federal level here. <laughs> I, I loved it. I really did. It was raw emotion. Um, and, uh, you know, it just really brought, I mean, Western Australia brought the result home for us. It was just um, fantastic uh, to, just to be a part of, really. I loved all of it. So let's unpack it, shall we? Um, now, as we've been doing in all the other episodes, so the overall, let's have a look at the overall sort of state of the states. Two party preferred. Um, there was a 10.4% swing to the Labor Party on 2PP. So um, they finished up with 549 almost 55% of the share of the vote, and the coalition dropped to 45.1%. That, that is what I call an ass kicking. Um, in the primaries, um, Labor led. In the primaries, it's the only state across the country where Labor was ahead on raw votes, primary votes um, over the coalition. They had a swing of 7% to them, took them up to 36.8%, uh, and they picked up, uh, they now, now hold nine seats out of the uh, 15, yeah, 15 in WA, and picked up four. Coalition had a 10.4% swing against them on their primary, lost five seats, and they're falling to 38.4. Greens, like a, a percentage point increase on primary. One Nation, a swing against them of 1.5%, and United Australia picked up 0.3%, so hardly anything. And then the others, which we'll probably talk a little bit about, um, they picked up a seat and had a swing of 3.6% to take their primary up to 9.7%. So, you know, just a really good... Really good result for, for for Labor. A seven percent swing on Labor on their primary is just fantastic for um, for Western Australian Labor. Um, what was your overall reaction to the to the results at a, at a statewide level? Oh, it's um, it is truly uh, it filled me with joy that uh, WA was able to sort of bring it home uh, for the national ALP, and and it is a um, it is quite something to be proud of in, as Western Australians. We, I think even if you go out there in the community and you talk to people who are not diehard Labor supporters, uh, they would even say to you that it is great to have such an impact as a state. So as a WA-first approach, um, it, is, it is definitely something to be proud of. Now, these swings, I, like... I've been listening to your um, to the episodes of every other jurisdiction, and there's a lot to unpack about what's happened in certain areas and whether um, 
you know, whether there was, you know, differences between inner city and outer suburban and what's going on in Queensland. And I, I think it's it's very complicated and, and complex and it's, you know, lots of challenging issues and so on. But um, and, and there's lots to dissect. But when I look at WA, it's fairly straightforward. So I've looked at every single seat had had anywhere between a 8% and a um, 11% swing towards on the 2PP towards the Labor Party and that swing on a primary is directly taken off the Liberal Party. Now, um, when I first came to WA in 2012, um, I remember uh, we, um, you know, did the 2013 state election, 2013 Fed election, had um, a, a lot of really good practical experience on the ground campaigning but not a really good result. And... Uh, we looked at, you know, in the lead up to the Senate by-election in 2014, we looked at we looked at what was happening in Western Australia with the Labor vote over time. And I remember I remember my partner actually pr- produced a graph to show that since the 80s, the primary for the Labor Party has been on a steady decline in both lower houses and upper houses at a state and federal level in Western Australia, with the exception of um, the uh, uh, you know one one state election result with Jeff Gallup won. Um, uh, uh, state government uh, and uh, really and in, in the 80s when Bob Hawke was Prime Minister and, and really it was just this, you know, pretty depressing graph that you'd look at as a steady decline of the vote that went to its lowest primary ever in the Senate by-election in uh, 2014 where it went as down, down to 23%. And I remember looking at that and saying the only way is up um we have really got to start to change the way we operate as a party and we could talk about some of these lessons later on but um the investment in training and building up our campaign capacity i think that's borne through fruit you know this is now um almost 10 years on um labor has been on a steady growth trajectory now in in the western australia in western australia is it something that i ever thought was possible that Western Australia could be such a red state? No, and it is amazing to see. But um, one of the things I I remember often is uh, back then the opposition leader, Mark McGowan, would always say, you know, the recipe is simple. Um, the recipe is very simple. We don't need to overcomplicate it. For us to win, we need to take votes off the Liberal Party. And I remember at the time thinking, Fantastic, you know what a <laughs> it's such uh, such a very simple way to just explain to people, you know, the core ambition. The objective here is to take votes off them. But I think just having that in the back of your mind consistently year on year, every campaign is pointing towards a um, has has sort of has sort of played out in Western Australia. We're not fighting third parties. We're not fighting minorities. We're not fighting uh, minority party, sorry, we're not fighting the Greens, we're fighting the Liberal Party. And everything we do is about uh, standing up for WA uh, here in Western Australia and, and it's not about, um, uh, and it's about sort of marking our key difference of what does Labor Party stand for versus what does the Liberal Party stand for. Now, it's sm- it's a small state, it's simple to say, um, but I think the work and the effort and the focus on that has paid dividends over time. 
Well, what, what I, I'm going to change the run sheet here because I, I know normally what we do is we then start to unpack some of those seats mm. we picked up. But let's go with that. What do you think? What What would you say has been some of the significant changes that happened going back to that 2012, 2013, yeah. 14 experience? Where do you see the foundational changes that led to this result today? Um. 2014, you would remember, is the year that I came to you in Victoria and said, what are you guys doing? (laughs) Because we're very interested over here looking at your hordes and hordes of volunteers and everybody having fun and your, um, you know, uh, policy a policy, a bold and brave policy agenda uh, that was communicated so clearly and simply to um, uh, to Victorians, and that led such a a wave of change through um, uh, through the country. And I and I remember spending some time with you and 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 spending a lot of time reading up about field campaigning and about um, the way to build a movement. Basically, how do you achieve true change and um, I, I say we, but I say me, but it, it's a, it is actually a group task. WA Labor got its shit together. Mm. Um, and the number one thing it did is it invested in training. Um, the Labor movement in, in its entirety invested um, and, and supported the party to, to roll out significant amounts of training in, in, at every level and for um, uh, any person who wanted to be part of a campaign, no matter the role they chose, whether it was candidates and we ran training programs, um, you know, that that were getting candidates, getting people who were interested in being candidates um, to experience what that might be like and to understand what that might be like so that they made a more informed decision about whether they wanted to take that on. Um, we ran training sessions to vol- for volunteers on how they could be part of campaigns. We ran training sessions for um, uh, electorate officers and, and staff members who wanted to better service their members of parliament in terms of community engagement and how to kind of listen to the community. And I think um, I wrote down, I, I wanted to kind of back, bring it back to three things. It was the significant investment in training, community organising and development um, and focus on it uh, and and so much so that the culture of the party became a hot competition of like how many doors had you knocked and, um, you know, my, my favourite is actually listening to uh, whenever Senator Sue Lyons is responsible for a campaign, any meeting she's in, her first contribution to that camp, uh, to that meeting will be my candidates just knocked on this many doors and, by the way, our campaign's just made this many phone calls, so thank you very much and we're going home. Um, and so I think that focus there was great and 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 what it, what it also sort of permeated through the party is a need for discipline. Like, uh, you know, separately I've been reviewing um, the Tasmanian branch of the ALP and I've got to say that, um, you know, from afar, I look I look over at Tasmania, and it, there's a lot of similarities for where WA was, um, you know, a decade ago, um, and and more so. And what it needs is a is a hit of discipline. Everybody's just got to have a common purpose and a common goal of we've got to win. We've got to win because it's better for the state. We've got to win because we've got some great policies that we need to implement. We've got to win because we know that our movement as a whole can can work together to do a lot of really good things for the for the state. And I think we got that in 2014. Um, there was just in 2014 and 2015 there was just these moments where the party just sort of looked at each other and went, "Let's shake ourselves up now and and instill a level of discipline where the ultimate priority 
is about making sure we get elected so that we could deliver. It's all well and good to have great policies, um, but it doesn't matter unless you're in government. So it was about staying focused on getting elected um, in order to be able to do the good things that we're doing. And those policies, those policies were not last minute, final week of the election campaign, drop something in the hope that you think it could pick people up. Those policies have been developed over time. We established something called the Fighting Platform, which brought the unions, the rank and file, the parliamentarians together to talk constructively about the kind of policies and platform and the agenda they wanted to see for government. Um, and it is, and it, and it was about listening to the community through our community engagement, through research and through our members of parliament engaging and visiting their stakeholders and talking to people and feeding back in what works, what do people need, what are people um, are looking for from government, how do you present an agenda that is bold and ambitious but not crazy enough to make people think that we're going to, you know, rip the carpet from under their feet or, or change everything and turn it on its head. So how do you present a sensible, centrist, but yet progressive um, uh, policy agenda in a way that is, again, clearly communicated to people um, and that builds hope and inspires people to change? So I think that training, discipline and that community-first approach to policy and to the campaigns and to the things that we did um, really drove a massive change that I think... Um, with a couple of other circumstantial things, and I cannot at all dismiss the exceptional popularity rating of Mark McGowan that was garnered by a love and support of the community built over the COVID period. Like, I cannot at all dismiss that there are some very big circumstantial things that also contribute to it. Uh, but, you know, it all comes together into this big moment where, you know, WA delivers federal government for the Labor Party and it's just something to be truly proud of um, as a state and as a party and for me personally as a party official who thought um, I'd come here, do a state election, fed election and try to hightail back to New South Wales, but here we are in the great Labor state of Western Australia. <laughs> you say it with such glee and so you should. Let's uh, <laughs> so much there to unpack and I want to start with the training things. You know, I, I, I do remember quite fondly when you did come over to Victoria in 2014 I think it would have been like September so we weren't that far away from the that win the vote phase um and you came over with a, a a number of other interstate colleagues from all the different branches to have a look at what we were doing in terms of developing the community action network and the, our field program and, and the like and and the one person that I thought had the biggest takeaways from what they were seeing was you. And you obviously went back to WA and thought about implementing a lot of the things that you saw in Victoria and not that we were, we weren't crushing it, you know, uh, and nor have we still, there's still a long way to go. You always have to continue to learn and develop. Um, but certainly watching it then being implemented in WA in the lead up to that first McGowan election was really, really um, inspiring to watch and validating as well. Um, and now you know as much as I do the challenges that it is to get people within the party leadership to embrace this type of campaigning and to resource it. Um, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think that the Victorian branch and the WA branch are the only two branches that have uh, an actual training director for the to support the field program or have had in the past. I, I know that the big branch doesn't have one right now, but they're looking for, to get someone uh, for the state campaign. But um, 
you know, how did you, what kind of challenges did you encounter and how did you overcome or did you encounter challenges or were people very open to this idea like this, we need to continue to develop all of our activists and grow that resource? Yeah, I think for me it was, I remember you saying, I've, I have this perpetual fear. I need to remind myself that this thing's being recorded, but it's okay. I, I think I'll just use it to do my confessions to Stephen Donnelly. Um, I have this um, perpetual fear that I'll get recruited by a cult because uh, I'm just ready to go. If there is a team and people want to kind of like jump in, pitch in, help out, I am ready to go. And I remember in Victoria you said it is a cult, but it's a good cult. Mm. And I uh, walked away thinking let's make campaigning fun Um your volunteers, this was the sort of experience when I when I went and saw it. So there was, you know, it was fantastic to see the community engagement. It was fantastic to see, um, you know, people learn how to, how to very simply and clearly articulate policies and insert their personal story and their values to, to, to make those um, uh, conversations very persuasive. And, um, and it was amazing, right, to watch all of that um, what I call the kind of flow on effects out of a really good community organising model. But the thing that I actually took away was people were having fun and enjoying themselves uh, working on a campaign and calling strangers and having conversations with them and sharing their personal stories with them and then sort of hanging up and going, I just had this fantastic conversation with this random individual about you know, my daily challenge of taking my kids to school. And I I remember feeling how great is that and I wondered whether we could recreate um, that sense of joy and that sense of fulfilment and that sort of really meaningful work um, when people come in and volunteer. And what I absolutely loved, what I saw in Victoria, um, what I absolutely loved about it was it was more than just party members. It was more, it, and our own party members were getting reinvigorated by the fact that new people were coming along and they were able to sort of talk to a wider range of people about their interests in politics. And and it was just exciting. Um, and so I think when I came back here, uh, the party was ready for that excitement. The party was ready to move out of, you know, talking about losing elections and doing reviews where we constantly say how we could have done better. Um, the party, the branch, the branches, the um, members, the supporters, when you get out and about, they were over it. They were talking about wanting to, um, you know, move beyond un- unpicking all of the kind of problems that always occur and just start talking about what we need to do to get on and fix it. And so, the timing was right to pitch to people about this really meaningful way of campaigning that has um, uh, an ability to kind of drive um, even the above-the-line campaign in that there'd be um, great um, uh, symmetries around a values-based discussion, inserting and using personal story and doing that from a leader to a candidate to a minister to a shadow minister 
down to a volunteer and doing that consistently throughout the party would just make a massive difference um, in in the way we campaign, the way we pitch campaigns and pitch our agenda and pitch our message to voters um, compared to what we've done in the past, which is just sort of list, list facts and figures and tell people there's a bank of policies on the website, feel free to go and read them. So I think... Um, I think that excitement was the it was the clearest and fastest way to motivate people, um, uh, and and it certainly motivated me. And then the more I talked about it to others, more the more it motivated others. And and people wanted to buy in. We had amazing support from across the party. You know, uh, Patrick Gorman, state secretary, fantastic support um, for for this new you know new way of community organising and campaigning. Um, the the leadership of the party stood, stepped up and said door knocks and calls. These are the things that we need to do to get over the line, get some training, get involved. And they were part of it. And they'd come in. I remember we ran in the 2015 Canning by-election We because um, the by-election got called at a certain time and we kind of had no choice, but we had to keep our um, scheduled conference. So we had this two-day conference in the middle of a by-election. Ah, I was like, yep, you're, you're, you know, I'm sure you could appreciate how um, much of a nerve-wracking thing that was, but we actually had, um, we ran, we made, we turned it into a campaign activity and we ran um, the, you know, world's biggest phone bank. Uh, so two days there was a, a centre adjacent to the conference room where everybody would pile in and we just made thousands and thousands of calls to into the Canning electorate as part of the by-election. We had this giant thermometer at the front of the conference stage and every time we hit another thousand, we'd colour that in. Anyway, I'm telling you these wonderful stories because I think it's easier in hindsight to look at, um, look at everything about how well it all went. Um, the challenges, though was about making sure everybody felt that they had a part in it, a part in it, and that might mean um, giving people the opportunity to invest in the program um, and, and choose how they wanted to invest in the program and, and sort of set the terms about what they wanted to do. But also it's it meant a lot more around um, giving away more information than you usually would. So, you know, we did this um, a pretty extensive um, engagement program with all of our own internal stakeholders just about the program we were looking to build and the way we wanted to run the campaign and the research that informed it and the sort of strategy that sort of sat behind it. And it was sort of more um, more detail than you would ever give to um, all the different levels of your party. Um, and we were just more, you know, we had to kind of get over the, bar- the barrier of sharing information and go out and do it because we knew it would build more support. But I think that um, culture and attitude has maintained and that has been um, pretty significant in terms of a massive culture shift uh, for the way WA Labor Party operates. There are more people involved in campaigns now than ever before. I mean, some of the stats out of this election, uh, they did uh, monumental 250,000 doors and calls um, uh, in electorates and they had about 100,000 conversations in that election period um, uh, in you know in all those seats in Western Australia, and I, so I think it's maintained. I think there are more people sharing information, and I think it's um, it's you know it's keeping alive because people are having fun and they're enjoying being part of it, and we're seeing the results of it. It's funny, you know, because I remember when I first read David Plouffe's uh, campaign um, biography called uh, "The Audacity of Winning." 
which was about uh, Pluff, those of you who don't know who David Pluff is, uh, was the campaign director for Obama in 2008 and 2012 presidentials. And he talked about it in the 2008 campaign, both in the primary against Hillary, but also in the, in the, then in the general, how they opened up, to your point, how they opened up the campaign to the community, that they shared the strategy with people. Um, that they weren't fearful of that. And that was one of the biggest takeaways I had from from that book and then obviously going out and hanging out with folks from OFA. And that's something that we wanted to replicate in Victoria and we did that. We used to run these strategy briefings with all of our volunteers and we, what we call strategy Steves, all, all the blokes that all want to, all, yeah, that's me, I'll be in there for the strategy. We're there to tell them the strategy and we did absolutely. But then the next thing was, well, in order to enact that strategy, we need you to knock on some doors or make some calls. Our strategy is based around mobilising thousands of people on the doors um and you know, fair enough good people got the strategy and said oh, i get that and yep i can commit to that um the, the um but to your point uh, about um motivation uh the you know the lens upon which we seek to uh organize leadership flows through three things head heart and hands the head represents the strategic of how we think the heart is the motivational side of how we think. And you need to engage both in order for the hands to be engaged, as in for someone to do something. If You could have the best strategy in the world, but if people aren't motivated about it and no one shows up, then it's a waste of a strategy. At the same time, you can have the most motivated people in the world, but if you've got no strategy, then it's a wasted resource, right? So, mm. um, you know, I think sometimes we do overlook the heart part of our work. And to your point, um, you know, in your biggest takeaway from coming out of Victoria, that was a new thing for us. I think we were always good at the strategy stuff, right? But we just didn't yeah. take the time to build relationships with mm. our volunteers between a field organiser and the volunteers, but also the volunteers together for them to build relationships with mm. them. And public narrative is so critical in that. Their story of self, the story of us. You know, every time you're on a campaign, that is a moment of the story of us. And then the story of now, what, are we, what is the urgent threat? What do we need to do to address that? So, um, you know, the public narrative, relationship building, um, and then bringing just that love and heart and courage into the work of uh, campaigning is critically important. But sometimes people look at that and think that's American mumbo jumbo and we'll skip over that. Did you find that, because um, one thing I noticed about, I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast, but I've, I certainly say this in training when I talk about the five practices of community organizing under the Gantz model. You can't be a cafeteria Catholic. I'm a cafeteria Catholic. I pick <laughs> bits of Catholicism that suits me because if you did all of them, I'd never leave the house. Um, you can't be a cafeteria organizer. You cannot pick and choose the bits of community organizing that suit you. And a lot of campaigns at, at times they say, oh, we'll do the strategy bit. So we love DVC. We'll get out there. We'll knock on doors. but And we're going to mobilize the same amount of people each time. But they don't take the time to build relationships, which then finds new resources, which finds new leadership. They don't bother with the leadership structure or they may skip over public narrative because they think that's American mumbo jumbo. I don't know. But how did you find your experience trying to embed this work and getting people to embrace all of these, some of these fairly new concepts? I guess it comes down to when you start to see results. And so um, there are a few things. So we, uh, where were I'm trying to remember where we were. There must have been a conference in New South Wales and there was a guy from the old New Organising Institute who was there presenting and uh, I remember there was this one night, you know, we're in the dark corner of a pub and I've got like a, a glass of red wine in my hand and on my head in my hand going, I don't know how I'm going to keep doing this. This is very um, 
uh, this is, you know, this is becoming such a you know, real um, uh, load on my shoulders now and it's kind of getting really hard. And I think, uh, you know, you, you're trying to you're trying to build a team and you're trying to kind of um, get people to change the way they've been doing things for a very long time. I remember sitting in this dark corner with this guy and just being like, you know, what what do you do? What do you think? What are your recommendations? And he very, very simply said something that said in my mind, um, uh, you know, and I've, and I've used it ever since, which is just work with the people that want to work with you, get results, and then find others. Um, and uh, that attitude just changed the way we focused our efforts. So when I came back uh, from whatever that conference was, um, I remember sitting in um, in the office and just doing up a list of who's in and focusing on them and creating opportunities for them to come and participate and be part of things. So whether it was as campaign managers, uh, field directors, field leaders, um, union secretaries that were, you know, into it, um, whatever it was, whoever was a yes that wasn't hard to convince, focus on them and see if we could use them to motivate others. Yeah. Um once we just did that approach, and again, I feel like uh, I feel like if you had asked me at the time, I'd I'd devil in the de- you know devil in the detail around the negatives. But right now, following that result in in WA on May twenty one, I can only see positives about the effort and overall effort and what and and how worth it it was to just work with the people that want to work with you to make this change and make the change happen. Um, to be clear about the outcomes and to communicate to communicate the wins and share the wins and share the wins together. The more we did that, the more people kind of had no choice and had to fold in. Like you were with us or you were against us. It was a cult. It was fun. People were having fun. More people were doing it. And you were either with us or you weren't. So uh, that became quite fun in the in the end. And, um, like, you could just see, you know, what I like now is when, you know, these campaigns were getting set up you know, back in back a year ago or so um, in the federal seats, you know, they're still looking for field organisers in, in addition to campaign managers. That was a massive change in itself, mm. you know, because we never had a role called field organiser. We used to have somebody who used to be responsible for calling the volunteers and telling them what booth they were on on election day, but we didn't have someone whose job it was to build community in every electorate and now we do now we do by default and that's an amazing thing that has sort of stuck it's stuck um the entire time but again just that clear, clear message of just working with the people that want to work with you it delivers results trust the system trust the program it delivers results and um once you start to see those results of um non-party members participating in campaigns the amount of field activity um the, the feedback that you get from the ground and how that can be utilised in your campaign and campaign strategy that uh, people will see the benefit of it and they'll just jump on board. A couple of things to pick up from you on that one. That person that you spoke to in the pub, I'm 99% certain it was Crazy Chapman. It is. It is. I was going to say his name, but then I thought I didn't know. I have a high regard for Crazy and and that simple advice just has dealt me a lot of good in my lifetime uh, ever since then so it works for field it works for everything just like how persuasion conversations and volunteer recruitment conversation structures work for convincing my partner to take out the bins 
That's good. Um, Carla Settle once said that the skills that she learned as a, as a field organiser has replicated in many, many ways in her life. I don't know if it's yeah. extended as far as getting a partner to take out the bins, but I'm sure it's similar <laughs> to that. Um, Quasi Chapman, for the listeners, uh, has been on this show before, so you can go back and look at some of the episodes. Quasi's been on um, when we talk about US politics. He's a DC-based uh, community organiser. Um, the only thing I want to ask you about, oh, this, this is something that oh, as we have been doing these episodes with wonderful people like yourself and talking to folks in each state on the ground and starting to analyse all the results, um, I'm coming to the view now, and I don't want to sound like Howard Dean and the 50 states, you know, um, strategy, but just, and I know that you guys in WA didn't have, I, I looked at pretty much every single Labor health seat. I think you had swings on, on all of your primaries in all of your seats. Yeah. Whereas what we've noticed in Melbourne, Adelaide and uh, Melbourne, Adelaide and uh, Sydney, I can't remember about Queensland or Brisbane, but certainly those three cities, there was swings against Labor on our primary in both the inner city seats to the Greens and in the outer suburban seats to sort of all the right-wing nut jobs, right? Yeah. Um, where they weren't swings on our primary, in fact, where there were swings to us on our primary was where there was a field program being run. And, and I'm now coming to the conclusion that those in safe Labor seats, if they're worried about losing votes to either the Greens or losing votes, primary votes to uh, One Nation or Palmer or, and then them going back into the Liberal um, 2PP, I don't know if they can get away with just doing a carbon copy rollout campaign where they do one or two mail-outs, maybe a postal vote yep. form, and you know, and that's kind of it, and just take it easy. Because look, there are some, you know, over the years, I've worked for the Labor Party for twenty years. I know this, and I've worked on one or two safe Labor seat campaigns. The candidates, some camp candidates or MPs, almost take a holiday. I don't think they can do that anymore. I think that time is over. And I actually mm -hmm. now, and I don't think they're going to get central funding for a field organiser. I think they're going to have to raise that money themselves. And I think they're going to have to invest in their own marginal seat campaign with a full 12 month strategy or maybe even longer than that, really. Longer, definitely. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about what's the yeah. minimum we can get out of these um, cam cam campaigns. I think, uh, I, th I think they have to start moving in that direction. I just want to get your thoughts on that. Well, let me, let me answer that. Like, let me answer that question without trying to annoy too many wonderful members in those safe seats. But let's look at it in WA. Um, Frio, Brand and Burt, while those three MPs will probably never refer to their seats as safe seats, um, all saw a 10% swing towards them um, at, at this election. And, I, I've, you know, I'll, I'll speak to all three of those MPs and they will never refer to their seat as a safe seat. But as far as... Western Australia federal ALP politics goes, those three seats will be our safe seats. Mm. And uh, what we've seen out of those three campaigns um, at this election was uh, those seats not being taken for granted. Um, they had substantial, uh, what I would call, more traditional forms of campaigning. Um, so uh, the New South Wales model, not the Victorian model, uh, just communications out to the electorate, lots of um, retail politics head, you know, out there um, be, going to sort of large events and being seen by people, getting out, chatting to people um, uh, in, in that sort of a little bit of an unstructured way. And I, I, again, do not try to say this in any negative way, shape or form. I think that is a really good way to get out and do some community engagement um, in, in those particular areas. And I think 
those three MPs um, uh, had a program of that effort that was pretty consistent. And they saw um, roughly between the three of them a 10% swing towards them. Now, Perth, um, the federal seat of Perth where I live and the wonderful Patrick Gorman is the federal member um, for my area. Um, he had, and this is probably also I get to saw it a lot, I saw it a lot more because it is my local area, but he had a, a pretty substantial door knocking program um, as part of his campaign and he got an 11.55% swing towards him. Um, the seats of Cowan, Hasluck, Pierce and Swan where there was a substantial uh, field campaign run saw swings of 11 14 12 percent and so yes there's some elements of you know demographics and there was a swing on but in the overall scheme of things why did certain seats stand out you know what was the point of difference in those seats um you know whether you had an incumbent that was running in um uh Hasluck or uh you know an incumbent that wasn't running like in Swan and Pierce because you had a substantial field program, you saw a larger, slightly larger swing towards those Labor candidates in those seats than where there wasn't a traditional, um, uh, you know, so when, where there wasn't a kind of substantial field program being run in some of those safer seats. So era, what I will say to that is um, effort matters. Effort matters always. Um, and I think, um, it, it, you know, I, I think in your... Um, I think you actually made this comment in your last in your last podcast. So to quote you back to yourself, <laughs> um, I think we've got to be kidding ourselves if we think um, that this is the trend. This isn't the trend. It feels great to have now seen a decade of growth in Western Australia of the primary, but let's be very clear where I started my commentary was um, back in 2014 where we produced the graph that showed the trend of the primary in the Labor Party has only ever drifted downwards in Western Australia um, since the 1980s with a couple of exceptions, which was the Hawke election and the Gallup election and now the McGowan election and the Albanese election, that the overall majority is still a downward trend and this is not a trend, <laughs> this is not a, a, a high and, and positive only trend um, going forward. I think there's some really strong signs, but I think anybody would be kidding themselves to think that what goes up doesn't come down. Um, and uh, there are a lot of things that we need to do to kind of retain the seats and and, and continue, um, uh, you know, uh, engaging and, and representing the community in, in the best of ways. Um, and the only way that we could we could do that is by not ignoring seats and, and or calling seats safe seats. Uh, and I hesitate to say this, but I, but I but I will. It is also about not being one hundred percent completely dismissive of the Liberal safe seats. We know we know a few things about um, uh, you know the overall benefit on return on investment in terms of your campaigning in in seats that have not been campaigned for is usually higher. We know that um, you know where um, uh, you can actually help increase your upper house vote is in seats where you don't traditionally campaign a lot so your safe held and unheld seats could be your um, best ground to pick up um, uh, extra upper house votes or senate votes and we saw that in the in the state in the election here in western australia as well where labor's picked up the third senate spot um, for the first time since the 1950s and that is because no seat gets taken for granted effort is shared across the board and some of that is from 
a central campaign that chooses to allocate its resources in a very strategic way that capitalises on the different forms of channel of communications that you could use, that leverages digital um, to to get out the message wider, that invests in, um, you know, uh, radio advertising, television programs and other apps and things so that you can try to get as much coverage above the line as possible. Um, backed in with really strong field campaigns in those marginal seats that saw a much higher swing than seats that didn't have a, a big field campaign in them. Let's turn our attention to uh, the role that Mark McGowan played in the campaign. And I, I want to ask the question um, with reference to the small or little impact that the minor parties played in the overall primary vote in WA. The Greens. One Nation, Palmer, uh, very little movement from the 2019 campaign to this one. Um, there's a view, you know, broadly speaking, that um, if you look at the results, as I said before, in, in uh, Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney, that there, there's swings against Labor on our primary. Um, how much of a role do you think Mark McGowan has played in terms of his leadership that people um, who, the, the same demographic of a person in, say, Broad Meadows in northern suburbs of Melbourne, that equivalent person in a suburb of Perth that you're going to have to name for me because I'll Joondal up, um, that have uh, th- th- they voted Labor in Joondal, yep. but they didn't in they you know gave their number one to someone else. Um, I like Mark McGowan has, I think, shown people in Western Australia that, um, you know, what a good Labor government could do and could look like. And let's just talk about circumstance. So, you know, um, and knock that on and knock that on its head. So um, COVID obviously created an opportunity for leaders to lead um, and and really demonstrate strong leadership. And this is where I think McGowan was able to shine. Um, he is, um, you know, a battle-hardened, hardened, you know, he's been a member of parliament since 1996 before that. Uh, naval lawyer, he's got um, uh, steely resolve and uh, really finely attuned to um, community expectations and community sentiment. And what he was able to do is um, put that all on display uh, for two, you know, for two solid years um, navigating COVID um, in Western Australia. And frankly, the more people saw it, the more they loved it. And um, it's like every politician's dream <laughs> to have people being, you know, being able to watch people interested and actually watching your press conferences. Um, and think back, you know, think back to 2007. If someone wanted to watch your press conference, how would they have done it? You know, I remember sitting on the Patterson campaign in 2007 and the message went out from national office saying, hi, you might be contacted by individuals to suggest that you start up a web page please don't do so and get in touch with us and we'll create you something that you don't have to worry about using. Um, or in 2010, when the message went out to all campaigns, like, um, please don't post anything on Facebook <laughs> to what it is now, right? And, um, you know, to have people who wanted to watch daily press conferences actually be able to because of various live streaming tools um, and platforms, um, they're able to see what um, 
you know, the leadership style of Mark McGowan. And what I think, so that that I think was the opportunity that, um, you know, kind of paved the way for his very high approval rating, very high popular, popularity rating in, in Western Australia. But what they saw is someone um, who authentically is a champion of Western Australia. Um knows he has to be one because he's originally from New South Wales, <laughs> like, all, like all good Western Australians are. Thank you so much. Um, so, he, so he is, um, and there is a lot, there's a lot of analysis and opinion about how he's done it and, and what he's done so well. Um, I read a piece the other day, I think it was on WA Today, that, that was just sort of re, recapturing and reiterating that sort of no one is a greater champion of Western Australia than Mark McGowan and his wife. Um, and not that they were pushing editorial, they were just sort of explaining how he went about doing it. Now, for, you know, go back to when was it, say 2016, 2017, the highest approval ratings I had ever seen um, in Western Australia in terms of um, uh, community sentiment towards politicians that they absolutely trusted to be strong advocates of Western Australia were for Julie Bishop at sort of 70 to 80% and um, Pauline Hanson at 70-ish percent, um, trusted sources. The next one underneath those two was Alana McTinnon, who's currently a minister in state in the state government. Um, there were some pockets of local MPs who had sensationally high approval ratings um, because of being uh, passionate and strong advocates for their areas. Peter Watson, who was the member for Albany, Mick Murray, who was the member for Collie Preston, both have retired at the... Um, uh, at the 20, uh, 2021 election, but uh, or twenty seventeen, but but you know both of um, both of these um, sorry at the twenty twenty one election, but both of these MPs uh, were seen as our local hero first. Um, Julie Bishop was seen as a Western Australian advocate first. Pauline Hanson somehow seen as a passionate advocate for Western Australia. Now you have Mark McGowan. Who has now solidified his his um, reputation as Western Australian first? So um, I think that plays a massive part, and played a massive part in this federal election. Um, in addition to overall sentiment against Scott Morrison um, and a, a mood for change um, that was uh, brewing across the country, and I remember doing that podcast with you pre-election. Um, to make some predictions about seats. And I guess the hard part for me was like having my head in two spaces. So I was trying to sort of say to you that I feel like something's really happening in Western Australia, but also I can't see it happening necessarily everywhere else. And I was trying to get my sense of like what's actually happening here and why is it different and, and or is it different or are we just sort of too close to it in Western Australia that we feel it's different and it's not. But in the end, it was, and I think what it was about Western Australia is because a we had the the factor of Scott Morrison um, backing Clive Palmer um, against Western Australia, and such a message that was repeated so consistently throughout the campaign. Um, I remember when Clive Palmer challenged Western Australia's borders uh, border restrictions in court. When that happened, uh, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be a single soul who didn't know about it who didn't um, immediately hate Clive Palmer for it, um, uh, stamp him firmly and clearly as someone who was against Western Australia and make their decision 
um, uh, you know, you know, and I think basically that was the kind of end of Palmer being able to do anything substantial from an electoral point of view in Western Australia. And then to have Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party back, you know, no matter how they choose to explain it and justify why they had to do whatever they had to do, at the end of the day, they supported Clive Palmer in that, in that, um, in that proceeding and Western Australians knew about it and those who forgot about it were reminded of it at the, at the election, which paves the ground, sort of softens the turf a little bit to say, well, then who for Western Australia? And up comes Mark McGowan, a passionate advocate for Western Australia, who says um, I, we need good partners in Canberra and points over at Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party and says, and that they are it. Um, they stand up and say, we're going to be partners of Western Australia in Canberra. Are we going to stand up for Western Australia? And I think that message, I know I'm just repeating the messages, but that message as a combined thing really tapped into the sentiment that was out there, which was, look, you know, I don't think we communicated um, a big, bold agenda for Western Australia at this election. I don't think we did, right? I don't think we needed to. I don't think the punters were looking for it. I think they were just looking for someone who, when they go over to Canberra, which we consider a little bit like NATO or the UN, it sort of sits over there, it makes all these decisions, and then somebody somehow comes over and tells us what the what the heck's going on. Um, there's some key fundamentals. We don't we don't want you to take all of our GST and and not give any of it back to us. Um, we don't want you to take us for granted in Western Australia. We want you to acknowledge that we were a powerhouse contributor to the economy, um, and because of the way we navigated COVID, by the way, we were really really important to the overall um, uh, sustainability of the economy as a country. Um, so you know, thank you, thank you so much, everybody else to Western Australia. Um, and and I think in that kind of combination of that sentiment of just not feeling overlooked, when you've got such a powerful leader like Mark McGowan saying we need a partner and this is the partner we choose, how could you go past it? That kind of combination of things really taps into all that the Western Australians wanted to hear was that someone was not going to ignore them. And then we had Western Australia's number one fan say, this other guy is number two. Mm. It was like a um, that's going to be powerful. Yeah. Uh, there has been reports. I think I read an article in the Guardian. Uh, I think it was written by Catherine Catherine Murphy um, talking about uh, this campaign within a campaign in WA. Um, and I think I've heard I've heard conflicting reports as to whether the, the, what level of agreement existed between the Western Australian branch and that sec. But what, regardless of whose idea it was, did. Did we see a very parochial Western Australian first uh, campaign on the ground in those target seats that may have differed? I know it's hard for you to compare. I'm not sure if you saw, you know, what type of campaign was being run on the East Coast, but um, was it very WA-centric? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it was. And I, and I will say this, the mark of a good Western Australian campaign is one that has fights with its national office constantly. Like if that's not happening then no one's advocating for Western Australia. When we did the review in 2019, um, we went to every jurisdiction and we talked to, you know, the kind of key people in the campaigns. We talked to candidates. We talked to rank and file. And we said, hey, you know, what's your feedback? What happened in, in 2019? And the, and every jurisdiction outside of New South Wales and Victoria, and I'll explain why in a second, 
argued we needed a unique message for our for our state. Um, you know, I heard it in the Northern Territory, South Australia, Tassie, I heard it in Queensland, I heard it in WA. Um, in WA, we've argued consistently for the need to run a WA first campaign now for many, many years. I think Tim Picton and Ellie Whitaker have been uh, the, you know, I will say it, the only successful party officials to do so. Um backed by, um, you know, backed themselves in and said, we will do it, we will resource it, and we will make it so. And I think a huge credit to them. I think it's a marker of a fantastic campaign in Western Australia to be able to say we need a localised message here and deliver on it. And I think we saw I think we saw that in no uncertain terms. The bunting was Albanese and Mark McGowan. The ads were all WA, WA, WA. They were authorised locally. Um, all the material was Western Australia first. The message was stand up for WA. Like the the everything that I saw here was very much so t- targeted and tailored um, to to Western Australia. And from my you know brief sort of looking into the other jurisdictions, I think there was elements of uh, localized targeting and there was elements of um, localized issues. Certainly, some of the negatives. Um, were hyper-targeted from both sides um, in 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 local electorates and some statewide stuff that we saw, but um, nothing, I think, compared to the significant campaign that was run in Western Australia that was purely targeted to Western Australia. And I think it's a mark of, of success and a huge credit, again, to Tim Picton and Ellie, uh, for, Ellie Whitaker for getting that over the line and, and navigating that. And, no, you know, good, good, campaigns and good strategies come with good tension and good discussion. So, um, you know, I don't want to play into any rumours or whatever, but I just think it's a mark of a very healthy campaign if if you are having a genuine discussion and a tussle around strategy and what works and credit to the Western Australians for winning that argument and it was an argument and I will back that in. Um, <laughs> uh, but I will say this, the reason why that might feel different in New South Wales and Victoria is because you have traditionally as big states been able to resource your own campaigns. I like I know this from my New South Wales experience is we, you know, in an election campaign, you'd go to New South Wales head office, you wouldn't be on the phone regularly to the national office. And then when I came here in um, and we did that first 2013 um, federal um, uh, election campaign from WA, uh, I mean, we relied heavily on the national office um, to kind of give us the direction and give us the um, sort of overarching message of strategy and so on. And we needed that because of our, um, we're a small state, even though we're physically large, where we were low on resources. And so we relied on the national secretariat um, and we needed to be, we needed to be part of the national campaign in order to pull it off. What I think we've been able to do over the over the years, and I again cannot tell you how amazing it is to to have this feeling and to live in in a the great Labor state of Western Australia, um, is is really stamp our mark, but then put up or shut up. So we back in with our own resourcing, and we deliver a localized campaign that works in Western Australia. We got evidence we've got resourcing we've got the people to do it we've got the capability and the capacity to do it and that's a huge credit to everyone in wa labor for really stepping up and owning our state last question i want to ask you is about um candidate pre-selection i was interested to know mm. the diversity of the candidates that uh were on the ballot and also then got elected as well coming out of the west and i know that i would be guilty as being a you know woke 
Southern Mexican, Victorian, whatever you want to call us, uh, Melbourneian about uh, sort of uh, tropes about WA being, you know, just full of cashed up bogans and expats from the UK. Shout out to mm-hmm. my cousins, the Mullins <laughs> from, from, from Clyde Bank who are living up in Swan Valley. Um, but clearly, you know, the the team that you're going to send to Parliament uh, when it resumes is is just as diverse as any of the uh, the the MPs that are coming out of Victoria. Anyway, what, what, what's um, what's what's happened in the terms of the way that you pre-selected candidates in WA? One thing I actually yeah. you talked about training candidates, candidates who are thinking about being candidates yeah. is such a great idea. That's something I've wanted to get off the ground here in Victoria for a while, and I love it. Tell me more about that as well. Okay, let me start with that because I think you're going to find this quite funny. So we had, um, I'm going to get the numbers wrong because it was now some time ago for me, right? But let's just say 20 participants or 25 participants um, went through a program that was actually initiated by um, the former member, the former and late member for um, uh, Balcata, John Kabelke, who is... um, very dearly regarded by a lot of people, but also um, particularly me. My partner is the member for Balcata, um, and um, we, you know, hold John Kabelke in such high regard. And because of John, also, I've been able to meet, you know, um, uh, you know, I have a, a professional coach that I, um, you know, talk to and regularly bounce ideas off, and sort of, um, you know, use to kind of maintain my my own regular commitment to professional development in my current career and um, so beyond politics. And, I, you know, I met him through John Kabelke as well. So this guy had a passion for professional development, for training and for helping people be the best they can be. And he initiated this idea and we ran this program uh, back then and 25 people participated. It was like 10 sessions. It was some mentoring in between. We did sort of ethics training, policy development, how campaigns work, what does fundraising feel like and look like, um, all of that. And we sort of unpacked it all. We did, you know, uh, presentation training, personal story, you know, all of all of it. In the end, we asked people if they were interested in being candidates. Only three said yes. Yeah, there you go. And as much as that was a, a bit sort of disheartening, it was actually quite a good thing because how many times, Stephen, have you run campaigns where no one's briefed up the candidate on what to expect, mm. candidates just sort of thrown into the thick of it, um, and then they get all these calls from party office telling them to fundraise <laughs> and they've never had the experience of asking for money um, They've never had the experience of someone slamming their door in the face. Mm. Um, you know, they've never had the experience of having to motivate or lead a team of people themselves or being talked about in a third person while they're in the room. And so there's all of these things. And then then that's just the campaign, let alone you get elected and suddenly you're part of this big group of people and you're sitting on this back bench and, you know, there's a questionable level of influence you have around policy in that you think you're going to be in there writing policy papers but it's just actually not what happened you know not it's not what actually happens when you when you get elected you have the ability to speak up and you're all obviously closer to the power and to the decision makers but um you're not kind of in there kind of coming up with brand new ideas and and sort of developing new strategies on how to address certain issues and stuff. It's just not the reality of what a job of a Member of Parliament is. And so 
I actually think this training session needs to be, you know, this module needs to be rolled out everywhere so that people are fully informed and fully aware of um, what they'd be committing themselves and what they'd be walking into. Um, And I think out of that you would get a... um, a more committed level of candidate as someone who is, you know, fully aware and fully capable of um, investing themselves and know and knows the cost, knows the cost on them, knows the cost on their families and can how to mitigate some of that sort of time away from home and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I just, I cannot recommend it enough. I think we need to be having these more open conversations about life as a member of parliament and being, and what happens on campaigns so that people, so that we get the best people that are ready to put themselves forward and into that position and mitigate against kind of people getting a bit confronted by the whole experience a little bit as well, um, let alone all the other challenges, you know, like let alone everything else that comes your way when you're um, uh, pre-selected. So I think it's very really worthwhile and I think we should do it more often. Now, to your question about um, diversity, Western Australia had... Um, Uh, the Labor Party in Western Australia has had the strongest rules on affirmative action now for the longest period um, in the country. So led the charge. Now, I was trying to get my dates, um, uh, uh, you know, trying to get remind myself of the dates while I was um, uh, getting ready to do this with you, but I I, I just couldn't work it out, but it was uh, in time. But it was um, led the charge. It would either be you know, in the 90s and set up, and set up some rules that had um, a carrot and a stick approach to AA. So affirmative action was put in the rules and um, if the party didn't reach the affirmative action quota in pre-selections and in groups of pre-selections, um, the stick would come down and all positions would spill, all positions, not just the group. And so the carrot and stick approach focused people's minds. Um, I reckon that would have been a tough debate back then and uh, credit to the party for leading the charge in that sense. And, I, and the other thing that the party did at the time is it gave, um, you know, the, there's these, um, you know, like interest groups in, in, the, in each jurisdiction. There's, a, there's always a Labor women's interest group that exists in every jurisdiction. Um, the Western Australian Labor Party gave that group votes on the caucus floor. Uh, sorry, on the state executive floor. And so um, now you're, you've got delegates, you've got skin in the game, you've got a rule that gives you a carrot and stick approach, a hammer if you don't succeed. And I think what that rule did is, again, initiate a process where the party's culture changes on diversity, right? It's not necessarily about filling quotas. And I know that that's the argument that people who argue against quotas say is like, oh, then you're just a, um, it's not it's not merit-based, you're just taking people to fill positions. But what it actually did was instill the culture, embed in people's minds that if you want to come here to play, you come here to play with affirmative action and diversity in mind. What I reckon I've noticed in Western Australia, which is different from other other branches that I that I'm for, a, a little bit familiar with, um, is that our leaders across the party proactively look for diversity in their candidates. They don't um, put up candidates of of one gender, one persuasion, and sort of double down and back them in as a as a general rule. 
diversity is um, embedded in in the in what the leaders do. And by that, let me just say really clearly and bluntly, any factional leader is uh, in Western Australia always looks for diversity in their candidate mix and who they put up um, for pre-selection. Um, union secretaries are, are doing that. The uh, state leader and and um, leadership of the of the government encourage it. Look for it. Look and ask for it. Ask the factional leaders and the union secretaries and the rank and file to put forward diversity candidates. It is naturally embedded in the way we do things. And so, I I reflect on that and I say that that kind of carrot and stick approach and that hard rule that went in early and which has now increased in the kind of um, quota over time. So I think the first one it was um, 30%, at least 30%. Eventually, I remember when I first came here, the rule was um, 40% uh, for for women and 40% for men, like it was like very determined. Now it just says 50%. And um, we the National ALP conference that changed the and put in the progression to go from uh, 40, 45 to 50, we put that in and put it in on a faster timeline um, to just kind of get on with it and get underway. Everybody here, um, uh, it's second nature for all of the people who are out there looking for candidates or talking to people who are interested in becoming members of parliament always say, you know, our priority is to look for, you know, good quality candidates that are exceptional local representatives and so on, um, uh, who are, you know, smart policy thinkers um, who who represent uh, a diverse electorate and are, um, you know, diverse themselves. So I think that, that um, you know, make it, having the tough conversation, the tough challenge years ago, decades ago has paid off um, and it's embedded now within our culture to, to look for those good candidates. I think the challenge for us going forward is to know that diversity is more than just gender. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think we need to challenge ourselves. We're doing well, but we could always do better. We need to challenge ourselves to be more representative of, um, you know, multicultural, um, you know, various levels of, of, of um, uh, disability, Indigenous uh, representative and voices. We need to kind of look for those people and put them forward. Um, and that's our kind of next challenge. But I will say that one of um, the kind of uh, jewels in the crown of this election um, was actually to also see NRL become the become a minister in the in the government. And um, you know, I remember in her campaign um, when she first ran in 2016, uh, there was uh, a lot of personal attacks on her for for being Muslim and. Uh, she really rose above it and you've met her and she has a fantastic attitude and um, I think uh, it's been, you know, one of the most amazing things to see is her becoming a minister and becoming a minister from Western Australia um, and representing the seat of Cowan where she was, um, you know, she's had a couple of really close battles in that seat and also, um, of course, Senator Pat Dodson who, you know, is about to lead one of the most, you know, um, most important conversations we are going to have as a country, which is Illawarra's statement of the heart and the recognition of um, Indigenous people in Australia. And here he is, the Senator for Western Australia, um, who is going to be leading that charge. So we're doing well, but there's always room to do better. 
Um, and we did. I mean, when we did the uh, preview episode, we talked about Cowan and and Ali's uh, seat. And we, whilst we we're looking at a whole bunch of seats, we wanted Labor to pick up. We we're at the back of our minds. We're going, "Geez, I hope Anne's going to be okay." But she had a whopping nine yeah. percent swing through on her primary. Holds the seat by sixty percent now. So, and now in the ministry, which has just been a fantastic result. And as you, yeah. I, I just want to uh, echo your sentiments: a jewel in the crown of uh, what's been. It was a great night uh, for the party in 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 the West and bringing it home for us. In the words of Vanessa Williams, you've saved the best for last, um, uh, Linda. Um, this has been a fantastic episode. I've really, really enjoyed uh, the chat. I know we didn't um, – uh, we kind of broke away from the tradition of how I've done all the other episodes and just had a bit of a yarn, and I just really enjoyed it. And I hope – I'm sure our audience uh, will have as well. I could have – I've left a whole bunch of questions on the floor because we just have <laughs> time. But thanks so much for coming on the show again today. Uh, and giving us a great analysis and breakdown of uh, the the um, the foundations for success that we saw on on election night. Um, it's been um, it's been a great episode. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.